Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news podcast. And please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. In the presidential debate, Joe Biden was saved by moderator Chris Wallace. In the vice presidential debate, Kamala Harris was saved by a fly. Is, is a great insult to the men and women who- Well, the vulgar display of bullying and bellicose behavior of Trump brought presidential debates to a new low. You have repeatedly well, criticized- wait, I have to answer his statement. No, I, you have his repeatedly- statement. Wait, you have repeat, No, you've been talking he back and forth. He made a forth. statement. I'm asking you- I would love to end it. I would love to end it. You know, if you want to switch seats- We, we can very quickly- we can do In some ways, the VP debate was even worse praised by most pundits as being civilized, perhaps that's what was so wrong about it. The same lies and hatred dressed up in a central casting presidential looking Pence who pretended to respect his opponent rather than trash her, I think was even more insidious than the at least honest and raw expression of the rage and contempt Trump feels towards anyone who disagrees with him. The inability of the overscripted Harris to land a punch on the perfect square jaw of Pence when so many opportunities presented themselves that almost any well-informed viewer could have devastated him, I think was less about her quality as a prosecutor than her political strategy of trying to appeal to Trump voters and conservatives in the audience in a way that corporate Democrats imagine might work. It's called playing it safe, and perhaps it was given the lead Biden holds at the moment. But her disavowal of the Green New Deal and her passionate defense of fracking brought the level of discourse to another new low in its own way. I remember when Obama, who was no socialist, was accused by McCain of being a socialist in the last week of the election of 2008. He did not get defensive. Instead, he said, quote, my Bible tells me I should be my brother's keeper. Compare that to Biden and Harris running as fast as they can from every progressive notion they claim to support. And this is civilized. In a forthcoming article, Leo Panitch says, what was perhaps most disturbing those, to those of us abroad who watched the so-called debate, and here he's talking about the presidential debate, was what it revealed about the current level of American political discourse. Whatever else may be said about the disappointments of his presidency, Obama certainly raised that level, not just in comparison with Bush, but even with Clinton. By contrast, the degradation of political discourse under Trump brings to mind Umberto Eco's observation that the most telling characteristic of the rise of fascism was how its impoverished vocabulary an elementary syntax increasingly limited popular capacities for complex and critical reasoning. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. Supremacists and would right you like me to white supremacists and right supremacists. Stand back and stand by. Is this level of discourse we've seen in the debates a reflection of the rise of fascism in the United States? Is the narcissistic, megalomaniacal buffoon Trump the tip of a more organized, coherent fascist spear? We will defend America against all threats. Is Trump a farce that will usher in a greater tragedy? Is the liberalism of Obama and now Biden part of the process of fascization too, in that the inequality gap will continue to grow wider and the economic and psychosocial depression of the working class is likely to worsen under Biden if, as expected, he continues on the road established by Clinton and Obama. Obama's administration set the stage for Trump. Will Biden set the stage for an even more dangerous far-right demagogue? President Tucker Carlson, anyone? Don't laugh. Stranger things have already happened. And if so, what are the economic and geopolitical forces driving the fascization of America. Now joining us to discuss this is Adolf Reed. He's a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. He's taught at Yale, Northwestern, and the New School for Social Research 
and is considered a leading voice of progressive and socialist thought in the United States. Also joining us is Leo Panitch. Leo is Emeritus Distinguished Research Professor of Political Science at York University in Toronto and co-editor of the Socialist Register. And he's considered a leading progressive thinker and writer in Canada. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. So, so Adolf, first of all, why don't you kick us off? What was your impression of, I guess, last night's debate and how it connects to this larger question of the uh, degeneration of discourse and what that means politically? Right. Well, I'm smiling because I didn't watch last night's debate. <laughs> <laughs> well, you missed the best moment, the fly. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I've seen the highlights, right? So, so I watched um, you know, last night's debate like I watched last, last Sunday's Saints game. Uh, by um, by scouring the highlights the day after, um, but I was taken with your uh, um, observation about um, uh, the contrast between um, Biden and Harris, uh, and and their commitment uh, you know, to running away from anything that sounds sounds left, uh, um, in comparison to Obama's smoother way of basically doing the same thing. Um, because I think one of the differences is like in addition to Obama's being uh, much more adept at uh, deflecting, um, that um, it's worth remembering that, well, first of all, Harris was the first person in the Senate to sign on to Sanders's single payer bill or Medicare for all in 2016. Uh, and um, she, she didn't bail until she decided to run, run for president, right? And you may recall from the first couple of debates, she was waffling a little bit uh, and, um, and only later uh, you know, became definitive in, in her opposition. But both she and Biden, certainly Biden from the very beginning, uh, and the mainstream, uh, I mean, Democrats, um, including the sort of group of of also rands um, who were contesting for for the nomination, like Klobuchar, uh, as I some 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 sometimes refer to them, and Bennett and Bullock and all the rest of the others, were. Uh, running against the left the whole time, right? So, in that sense, it shouldn't be surprising that um, that when pressed in, in a McCarthyite way from from the farther right, from the crypto neo um, straight up fascist right, that their reaction would 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 be to continue uh, would be uh, to take the bait and to show just how centrist by um, you know, the vacant language of the moment about how conservative they actually are, right? That they wouldn't um, push for serious healthcare reform. Um, you know, they wouldn't push for serious climate policy. I didn't know, for instance, that Harris had, had, had changed her tune on fracking, which is shocking. First of all, I will repeat, and the American people know, that Joe Biden will not ban fracking. That is a fact. But one of the features of this election is that um, we've got a Democratic candidate who's committed to um, a view from the very beginning of, of the campaign that the left was a greater danger than, than, re than the possibility of the re-election of Trump. And I'm sure that, that he and Harris and Schumer and Pelosi have all convinced themselves and one another um, that, that it really is all, all about electability because uh, that's you know, the story that they tell, 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 tell themselves. Um, so, but then that once again, I mean, leaves us in, in this odd position of wanting them to be elected, but that's what we've got to do. Uh, Leo, th this article you wrote about this the level of discourse and, and growing fascism, is that, if that's what you're seeing in the United States, what are the forces driving it? I'm not sure I quite had the same take on the debate. 
uh, apart from the fly. That was a great comment. Um, and I do what I do think is correct, though, is is that when Harris said so vociferously, uh, "We will not tax anyone earning four hundred thousand dollars or less." I thought that just said everything, and Pence kept pushing her, of course, on this. And you know, this is the way in which uh, that wing of the dominant wing of the Democratic Party has accommodated to neoliberalism uh, since, arguably, uh, Reagan, maybe even earlier. Uh, and and uh, of course, she also committed, uh, as Biden has done repeatedly. Uh, that they would not do away with fracking. So on the substance of the matter, I think you're right, uh, certainly. My own impression is that they aren't more afraid of the left than of the right. I think these people are absolutely convinced that a democratic socialist is unelectable in the United right. States. Right. Uh, in addition to be convinced that, you know, liberal capitalism is the best of all possible worlds. I do think they desperately did want Trump out. I think that is their top priority. And I think they uh, very sincerely believe, and I'm not sure they're entirely wrong given the balance of media forces uh, in the United States, uh, that Sanders would not have been electable. Um, and, and certainly one of the reasons would have been that uh, there would have been such fractions in the Democratic Party, uh, as there were in Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, mm -hmm. uh, which would make the party look divided much more than the Republican Party right. appears today. Uh, despite, you know, as, as Harris so proudly pointed out, seven of Bush's cabinet members are supporting Biden. Um, so you see a divided party there, but much more in the Democratic case. Uh, so in those senses, uh, uh, I, I somewhat disagree. On to the question of the discourse. Uh, I do think it was a more recognizable political discourse, not only on Harris's side, because she is an Obama-type clone, um, uh, but also, and, and I do think she scored a point against him uh, on the Supreme Court issue when she uh, said, and he couldn't respond, that Lincoln, who she was sure Pence admired greatly, uh, had a Supreme Court vacancy to fill with 24 days in the, in the election. And he said he wouldn't fill it uh, because it should wait for the next president. So she scored with him, I think, there. And it was the kind of substance that you didn't get out of uh, here's the deal, mm -hmm. Biden, or the blustering Mussolini type of behavior we got from Trump in the first debate. It did look something more like uh, the lineup of the Republicans against the Democrats from Reagan on, not least when you could see that Biden got most motivated around the issue of big government and taxes. Mm -hmm. And that was very familiar stuff. He played the religious line, to be fair, to be, you're right, in a way that connects with his type of evangelical neo-fascism. Um, and she responded typically by saying, I'm religious and Biden's religious. What was interesting in American historical terms was she proudly said that Biden would be the second Democratic Catholic president. I thought she blew it by not pointing out that Kennedy was the first, because I'm not sure how many people <laughs> would even know that in American public life today. But uh, so, I, I, if you want me to pick up on the question, of well, let me let me just say before you do, uh, I, I was just blown away, frankly, at how she didn't even listen to what he was saying and how ill prepared she was. Like even on this question of that that Trump and Biden keep. Uh, not Biden, Trump and Pence keep repeating how he closed down travel from China. Uh, the fact checker on CNN did better. Uh, it, it, in fact, he in, didn't turn, 
closed down most of the travel from China. There were all kinds of categories of people that were still allowed to come from China and, and thousands and thousands of people did. But even more importantly, on the East Coast of the United States where this thing really took off, the research has shown that it actually, the, the virus came from Europe, not from China. And that's been out there in the press for months and months. Yeah. She was so ill-prepared for any kind of factual discourse. I mean, even at that yeah. kind of level, uh, there was no real substance. It was a bunch of platitudes. She was prepared on the Supreme Court. She wasn't prepared on that. You're right. And she kept repeating all these deaths. My heart goes out to all these families. Yeah, but even on the Supreme Court, like, why don't they answer the bloody thing about uh, packing the Supreme Court and just frankly say, if you guys force through something that, which is clearly you shouldn't be forcing through at this time when the election's already started, then yeah, we'll consider packing the court. I mean, be honest about it. That The leading figures in the party are saying it. Who do they think they're going to offend, except people who are never going to vote for them anyway? I'm not so sure they're being electorally ineffective. Uh, I really am not. No, I mean, on that one question of the, no, generally, I think the, the Biden campaign seems to be working, generally. Well, I, and I think that's not an important, I think that the, I'd like to hear from Adolf on this. I mean, I, I do think uh, in terms of the question you were posing, that uh, the fascistic culture uh, that we're seeing in the United States is very serious. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it does appear that the Obama-Kamala Harris type of discourse uh, is capable of defeating it electorally. I'm not convinced that they'll defeat it by enough that uh, the, the Trump campaign won't attempt to challenge the outcome. And there won't yet be blood in the streets. I'm not yet convinced of that. On the other hand, I think the news today that the FBI has sussed out a far-right militia conspiracy in, Mi in Michigan uh, to arrest uh, Governor Whitmer is the equivalent of the Reichstag fire right. in the rise of German fascism, but on turning it on its head. Right. That is, the state apparatus is using it against the fascists rather than against the left, which is what happened in the Reichstag fire. So I think things may be coming together in such a way that won't prevent the legacy of Trump being a very strong fascistic a fraction in American politics that isn't going to go away and may be very visible in 2024. Uh, and there may be a lot of blood in the streets even this November. Uh, but it does look like the Biden-Harris strategy will probably bring them into office. Well, Adolf, let's assume that's true. And it looks like that now. Uh, it, I guess things could change, but it, it looks that way. But does this point, I, the question I was raising earlier, is, is Trump a, a somewhat of anomaly or is this really part of a, a somewhat qualitative growth of the rise of fascism in the United States? And if that's true, what's driving it? Well, and that's an interesting question too, Paul. I mean, um, I mean let me just say something about the, uh, um, 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 about the Democrats uh, or, well, both really Harris and and Biden's uh, um, waffling, I guess, or coyness on uh, on the court packing question. I mean, um, I think it's right that um, from the standpoint of electoral effectiveness, I think it makes makes sense sense for them to do that, right? Because um, they don't. It wouldn't make sense for them to say, no, no, we're absolutely not going to pursue it. Um, and it wouldn't, but the cost of saying yes, and even laying out the qualification, right, uh, that it's a retaliatory move, move to what Trump did, or to what Trump, Trump is trying to do, would just set them up for more attacks and contumely coming from, from the Trump administration. Um, but, um, well, I mean, I think, but on the bigger question, I mean, I've, I've been saying this for for a little while now, but I think that uh, that it may just be like as <clears throat> I mean, especially as we look around the world, um, it may just be that um, you know neoliberalism has 
um, kind of played itself out to a point at which it's not really capable of um, you know, delivering enough stuff, benefits to, to enough of the population to sustain its legitimacy as a democratic order or a nominally democratic order. And I know that's, that, that's, that's a reified construct, but it might simply be that we're at a point now where, um, I, I, I mean, I know in the US, right, um, you know, the number of people who are hurting and who are economically marginal, I mean, even before the pandemic, uh, ha has been growing steadily right over decades. Um, and the prevailing um, left of center discourse is one that either disparages or simply dismisses um, you know, the suffering of the working class and insecurity of the working class. Um, and as my good friend Anthony Mazaki once, uh, I mean, often said, if um, you know the current order can't hold because it can't deliver um, enough to working people, um, we either have to have, or either we have some um, credible explanations of why people are feeling more insecure, uh, and um, and something that sounds sounds like a credible path to trying to do something about it, um, uh, the right wing will and does and and has. And I mean, the Democrats, I mean, the neoliberal wing, wing of the Democratic Party has nothing to offer the actual working class population out, out there except bromides and cliches. Um, so in that sense, I mean, there's a, um, yeah, I've been thinking that, that we may simply be approaching a point at which there are only two, two directions forward, either the direction of an authoritarian neoliberalism, because as everyone knows, you don't have to have um, a democratic, uh, I mean, even a nominally democratic order um, for ne neoliberalism to function. Um, in fact, it, um, you know, the ideal would be just the opposite probably, or um, a step in the direction of something like struggles for social democratic uh, um, re reforms. And, and that just might be where we are like in American politics now. And, and, and that speaks to one of my concerns about um, a Biden-Harris administration. I mean, not that there's any alternative for us, but if, if Biden and Harris win, take office and muddle through for four, four more years with the same bromides, then we could be setting ourselves up for a less crazy and more competent version of Trump. And then, um, and then, uh, well, the both of you guys, since you're back like in Toronto now, like um, you'll probably see me in that refugee population. <laughs> if we don't build a wall first, but we'll lobby, we'll <laughs> lobby for you to get in. But there's a thank lot you of, very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot of talk now about a wall coming up. Uh, Leo, what what is your take on this? this choice of kind of FDR-ish, but I don't see where the FDR is coming from, but right. some kind of real social democratic reforms versus more authoritarianism. And, and when you read some of the pre uh, foreign affairs and different kinds of literature and coming from the right, especially far further right, especially, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of discourse that there, there's no way to compete with China without America becoming more authoritarian. I mean, how much does that enter into this? Yeah, I, I think, first of all, we need to keep our eye on the ball uh, with regard to the importance of a united electoral front to make sure that these Democrats do get elected. Right. Uh, not, not only these Democrats, I, you know, there are other people running at other levels on the Democratic ticket uh, who do reflect at least a New Deal mentality if not something more to the left of that. So it's also important that they carry you know, on their coattails, people like that into Congress uh, and into state legislatures. Uh, these, this is not unimportant, especially given the size and the danger of the fascist threat, the legacy that will continue even after, uh, if Trump is defeated. 
It's also important that we keep the eye on, on the ball with regard to their attempts to uh, not recognize the outcome of the election, mm -hmm. which will definitely be the case if the electoral college difference is 30 or less. Uh, it may not be the case if it's, you know, 130 or less. Uh, but, you know, anything's still possible. And in that sense, it's very important that there be some discipline in the street protests and it not be led by mindless anarchists uh, who will be inviting uh, repression. Uh, now, I do, you know, and, and I think we may see terrible repression if that happens. Uh, so this is very short run, uh, but it's very immediate, and it's important that we not allow, as the communists did in the early 1930s, our awareness of the limitations of the, you know, center left, so to speak, uh, or of the center, so to speak, uh, uh, get us, confuse us over what to do uh, in November. I think this is the first thing that has to be said. Now, assuming that they do win, um, and I think it looks likely, and it looks like that other, other elements of the repressive apparatus, like the FBI and CIA, will not be moving with uh, the militias, the far-right militias. We'll have to, be, have to see, but I would expect other elements of the state, the local police forces, uh, and of course, the border patrol and so on could easily be mobilized in a different direction. Uh, uh, so assuming they get through, uh, you know, I, all that's to be said is that one has to try to take advantage of this opening. And it is an opening relative to Trump as possible. Right. Uh, it's incredibly important and it could happen if they take the Senate. Uh, that uh, the labor legislation that has been promised ever since Clinton in 1992, but never delivered to the very conservative American labor movement, finally does get through. And it's not inconceivable Biden will see it through. And if that happens, it, it's not just a matter of the dues checkoff and so on. It opens space for organizing in the labor movement by the left. And, and if that should happen, then it, a process of transforming the unions. Uh, can be set in train, which if the left is going to emerge as a significant force, is a sine qua non. Uh, so, you know, there is a possibility, and I think this matters less than what's in the policy heads of, of Harris or Biden, uh, as to whether we will see the types of policies that do look more New Deal-like, uh, than what's in the heads of Harris or, or Biden. What, what, what it'll take to make the Green New Deal happen uh, is, is precisely uh, the kind of mobilizations in the labor movement as well as in the environmental movement that, that uh, you know, would, would force them to go further and maybe engage in some direct state employment in the area, uh, in the era, area of infrastructure building, as, as the New Deal did. So I think that's how we have to look at this. Uh, not to imagine the fascist threat is over, not to imagine that these people, that would shift the balance of forces in such a way as to allow for far more progressive policies than the Harris and, and Biden types would like to have. Adolf, whether we're talking short term, meaning Biden doesn't win the Electoral College on November 3rd, but does win the Electoral College by the time they uh, do the mail-in votes, but Trump won't recognize the mail-in votes, whether it's that kind of short term, or Biden does win, does take office, and there's a need for a broad movement to uh, push progressive demands, because Biden's clearly going to be pushed enormously from Wall Street and to traditional levers of power. 
Um, what, what, is, what are the obstacles to creating a stronger, broader national movement in the United States? Because we're just weeks away from this election now. This scenario of a kind of potential Trump coup of sorts is being talked about openly uh, in all the media. And Steve Bannon was on Tucker Carlson. I've been saying this a few times on the analysis. He openly says the war begins on November 3rd. Right. Uh, well, if a war begins on November 3rd, there needs to be some mobilizing on, on the uh, people's side now. How much is there going on? And, and what are the obstacles to that building a broad movement? Well, that's kind of depressing, actually, I think. I mean, first of all, let me say that I agree completely with, with uh, the account that Leo just laid, laid out about what's, what, what's, what's possible and, uh, and of how we need to think about this. Um, and certainly the point that, that if the left is to become a significant force, uh, there's got to be transformation uh, within the labor movement. Uh, because everything else is basically Potemkin, right? And, uh, and that's kind of the tough pill, I think, for us to swallow as leftists in the U.S., um, that what occupies the place of a dynamic, structured social and political movement in this country is like mainly uh, has, has been NGOized to the extent that we've got like um, grass grass tops and no real mo mobilized base and um, and um, and 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 I'll draw uh, I mean listeners' attention uh, at this point to um, to the distinction that Jane McAlevey makes in her fine book no no shortcuts between mobilizing and organizing and I've I've had this complaint for for decades now. Uh, oh, but one parenthetical is, um, I mean, Leo, Jimmy Carter was the first of the Democrats to promise us uh, labor law reform, uh, 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 reform and back away from it. And I sometimes thought that Carter was like the warm-up act for Reagan and, uh, and the embryo of ne neoliberalism. And as I've dug, dug more into the earlier decade, I think Kennedy was probably the zygote <laughs> of neoliberalism because because uh, that's the point at which current currency stability began I mean, to out, out outpace full employment as a central concern of, of democratic national economic policy but anyway um but what we've it, it's it's a frustration that i experience you know, almost daily right like in my own work that people have have become so accustomed to acting as though we have a popular movement that's that's deeply embedded, that that they by and large lost the sense of that really important distinction that McAlevey makes between mobilizing and organizing, and nobody's been organizing in this country, right, um, uh, um, in a political sense for. I can't recall, I mean, for how long, frankly. Like we turn out people for demonstrations. We turn out people for uh, you know, street actions. We do all of the kind of stuff that the internet fundraising left and, and, the, um, and the NGO left urge us to do, postcards, letters, phone calls. Um, but, but, but the real work of building a base, trying, trying to build a base among working people, right? Not, not not trying to be heard on, heard on MSNBC, not trying to influence what's, what's written on the op-ed page of the New York Times, but getting out into the society. And here again, trade unions are crucial for this work and connecting with working people who we have to have the confidence um, are capable of hearing a message and an agenda that speaks to their direct material concerns uh, and but people who may not agree with us on on everything and and one of the problems here um, in this country in particular I think that there were probably also some tendencies in this regard up in Canada uh, and elsewhere even in Brazil at this point but um, is that people tend to think of the left too many people tend to think of be, be, being on the left like like being in a frat 
right? That you've got to show that you know all the secret handshakes and accept all the basic principles like before you get to be part of it. Um, I would, um, the good news for me in all this, right? Though it's been immensely frustrating since the lockdown, um, but that, and I was just complaining about this to somebody else. So, so like I'm going to be the altercocker who, who kvetches for like a couple minutes here. Um, but that, um, you know, that there's a cottage um, in the industry among um, sort of the bright and precocious young leftists, especially those who are enamored of the Second International, who uh, um, to um, sort of parse what, why it was that Bernie Sanders lost, right? Uh, how the campaign failed about this and the other. And uh, I've argued consistently that that's like the wrong approach to take because it was nuts to think that he was ever going to win. Most of us who were seriously involved, you know, and who weren't part of the inner circle, right, or the Vermont crowd, never thought that he was going to win. I mean, there was that moment between Nevada and South Carolina where, where I mean, everyone w was sort of inclined to say, wow, I don't know, maybe this could happen. But it came crashing down. I mean, that's another story for another day. But the key point is, um, and I mean, the objective uh, from my perspective was always to keep the campaign going for as long as it could be viable because of what it did. And I think it succeeded um, fabulously at what it did, which was, you know, in, in more than 20 consecutive primaries, um, a majority of, of Democratic voters identified Medicare for all as an issue that they supported and one of the most important issues. Even South Carolina, where um, where Biden cleaned Bernie's clock, um, a majority of uh, Democratic voters said that they supported Medicare for all. And we actually had more than 18,000 mainly black, mainly working class um, South, 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 uh, you know, South Carolinians sign pledges saying that they they were um, that, that they prefer to vote only for candidates who who supported it. So around the country, right? What I think that Sanders is showing, uh, I mean, demonstrated that there is a potential for us to connect with a working class base if if we do it, right? If we try to do it, if we try to do it um, around um, you know the panoply of issues that that connect with people's lives. Um, you know, the other thing about that is that we found in the South Carolina work that without any prompting from us, um, the people who, uh, the grassroots types who were part, 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 part of this effort, um, after talking a little bit about uh, you know, the healthcare issue and uh, healthcare as a public good, began bringing up on their own um, free public higher education, right, for instance. I mean, so if Healthcare should be treated as a public good. Well, why shouldn't uh, um, a higher ed be treated as a public good? Why shouldn't housing be treated as a public good? And that's where the movement's gonna come from. Now, the problem is we don't have it, right? And I guess this is not an uncommon problem uh, for, for, for our sort, but we don't have that, that, that movement. Uh, we don't have, um, insofar as what is understood to be a left in the US is organically grounded in any place, it's Brooklyn. Uh, and you know that's not what we need, that's really not what we want. Um, but, but a natural response and I've been, or, or a reflex of a response, and it's one I've been hearing for more than 25 years now, is that, okay, but the, peril, the perils that confront us now are so great that we don't have the time to indulge like the luxury of try, trying to organize in that way to which my response has, has been, well, the reason that the, part of the reason that the perils are so great now is we haven't been doing this shit for 30 or 40 years, right? So on that basis, I mean, and, 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 and uh, one other observation, really, it's not much of a point, but, um, but it's one that's worth maybe paying attention to for a second anyway, um, about um, you know, the need for discipline. Um, and Leo, um, a couple of months ago, like in the midst of the street action around, uh, um, around police killings and 
Black Lives Matter. I, I recalled um, and, and I went back and checked um, to make sure uh, that in the summer of 64, um, the main civil rights leadership, and this included King, Rustin, Randolph, uh, John, John Lewis from, uh, um, you know, from SNCC, the Urban League, CORE, um, helped, called a press conference and put out a statement calling for a moratorium on demonstrations, right? They, 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 uh, they put this statement out on the 30th of, of July, and they called for a moratorium on, on, de on uh, you know, demonstrations until after the, the November election. Why? Because of the imperative to defeat Goldwater. And it's just a way of thinking strategically about politics. They have the cultural force and the organizational ability to see, see that call through, right? Uh, and to enforce, I mean, the moratorium. Um, now, uh, I mean, Goldwater is like a walk in the park compared to Trump. Uh, but now, you know, there, there is no such um, grouping with the cultural force um, to even make the call to make it happen. Uh, and, uh, and, disorganized, um, um, self-indulgent, frankly, I'll, I'll, I, I just won't attempt to candy coat it. Protest act activity has become like um, the legitimate norm now, right? I mean, that's what radicalism is understood to be broadly, right? As performative politics and expressive activity. And that's understandable. I mean, everybody does it, right? And uh, young people especially are, are inclined to do it. And all the more so when they're operating with uh, you know, newsreels of, of Chicago in 68 and, and Watts in 65 and Birmingham in 63 playing in their heads, right? Um, but we don't have, you know, we don't have the organizational structures, right? And we don't have the political agenda, like I'm trying to finish my uh, New Republic column now, and and, uh, and my main uh, and the main focus is that this is the, I mean, this year is the 75th uh, 75th anniversary of the publication of Drake and Caton's uh, Black Metropolis, and um, I read it a couple months ago, again, and was struck. They don't talk about um, combating racism. They, they don't talk about um, at, at, at trans historical um, existential commitment to white supremacy or racism as the problem confronting black Americans. It's a field study of Chicago. And what they do is they examine um, you know, the history of, of, of the black population in Chicago from the end of the 19th century. And at every step, step along the way, like they, 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 they link prejudice and bigotry and the practice of discrimination to political economic forces, right? Competition for jobs, competition for, for a housing. And they finger um, you know, the, um, the racialist structuring of the real estate market uh, as, as what both, both produced ghettos on the one side and, and and a chunk of white, of white of, um, fear about the specter of, of black encroachment, right? That's something also that's that's been lost, right? Like we don't have a way of understanding racial injustice anymore, right? Um, as political discourse has become much more moral um, or moralistic and much less politically, uh, I mean, strategic. Uh, and I mentioned to Leo that, 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 I mean, more and more, I think we need, to, you know, and by the we here, I don't mean the worm, what worm I have in my pocket and me. I mean, we as, as, as leftists, right? And I'll end this rant just by saying this, which is um, what I have said often and will say often, that from the standpoint of building the kind of deep and broad movement that we need, um, to stave off 
this fascism that I mean, Leo is absolutely correct is not going to go away with 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 Trump. Uh, I don't see how we're supposed to get to that 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 kind of movement if we have to start out from affirming what we don't have in common, right? Uh, and that's one of the core problems with 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 what's currently called identity politics. And it just seems to me that, that they have a better chance even of working through um, racist dispositions, right? If it's possible to start out from a position of solidarity, not kumbaya or, you know, if everyone lit one, one little candle kind of solidarity, but the solidarity that 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 comes from understanding that you have common interests and that uh, that you fight for in common as part of a common project, uh, and it just seems to me that all of the anti-solidaristic stuff now, especially because of the mounting danger of of these fascist tendencies, it's just time to call shenanigans, right, right on that stuff because it's just not not it, it's it's counterproductive from the standpoint of trying to build build a um um to build build a real left in the u.s uh leo the the issues of like housing and, and employment all the more immediate economic issues which clearly do engage and mobilize people especially as the depression deepens which is likely to happen given the pandemic is already into its second wave and and Right now, there's no end in sight. Uh, yeah. Who knows? Yeah, pardon me, but I saw today there are 840,000 new applications for unemployment. Yeah, and uh, but but the but the overriding issue of our time, which in theory should be something that could unite every kind of interest, mm -hmm. is the climate crisis. But it keeps getting second, third, and fourth on a grocery list of issues when we have very very little time. Uh, the issue of building a broad movement and, and trying to coalesce all the different silos of issues and people uh, that are involved in things, do you not think there needs to be some push from, from the left to make climate the sort of galvanizing, organizing issue that a broad front, a very broad front gets built around? Because even sections from all kinds of classes, including sections of the elites, are getting how existential that threat is well sections of the elite have been getting it since the 1960s right uh and you know the environmental movement from that point on was supported by capitalists who understood what, what was happening um I, I think that's right paul uh i think however and i'd say this in relation to what adolf said as well that i think there is plenty of stuff to build on in this respect uh, and it doesn't behoove us to uh, set those indicators of exactly movements in the direction you're both speaking of uh, taking place. Of all places, you know, at, at the heart of the American empire in the United States. Um, after all, uh, the Green New Deal uh, did emerge as the symbol. Mm -hmm. of what the democratic socialist left now is in the in and outside the democratic party um and it was no bad thing that it was identified with the old new deal because it implied that the left was concerned with uh workers fears that they would lose their livelihoods um so i think that that we see a trend in this direction the fact that politicians, uh, utterly pragmatic politicians, uh, career ambitious politicians like Kamala Harris, signed on to AOC's Green New Deal and then had to backtrack is an indication of how much pressure there was in this respect. Uh, this is very important. And all I'm saying is that people are oriented to speaking and thinking the way in which Adolf was speaking. I think that there are tens of thousands of young people mm -hmm. who are and and that's the future uh and they do think in ways that 
uh, I think, realize, unlike most environmentalists, that you can't speak as though it's all over in five years right. or 10 years. Right. If you speak that way, we're screwed. Right. Because, as Adolf was saying, the short-term capacities in the environmental movement as elsewhere do not meet the long-term exigencies of strategy. And, and we've got to be thinking in long-run strategic terms, including how do we change ourselves as activists uh, uh, to be able to take this on. This cannot be done in five or ten years. And when you have a rhetoric of we've got five years or ten years left, then people go to bed and pull the sheets over their head or, you know, go to watch porn videos or whatever they do. Uh, and and it's really important that environmentalists now start saying it may be the case that after 10 years from now, any transformation we're going to make in the social order will have to deal with aspects of the environment that cannot be undone. Right. That doesn't mean the end of human life on Earth, but it, it, it may mean that it, it won't be a socialist Valhalla that we get to easily. Um, but we need to be thinking in terms that aren't limited by this phrase. All right, well, gentlemen, thanks very much. This is just the beginning of a, a conversation. Uh, so thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Paul. It was great. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Paul. Good to see you, Leo, even if it's virtual. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Don't forget there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. Thank you.